Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Wednesday, January 31st, and this is your FT News Briefing. Microsoft had a stellar fourth quarter, and the global economy is doing better than expected. Plus, allegations against a UN agency called UNRWA is putting more pressure on the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Within Gaza itself, what UNRWA is doing is described to me by almost everybody as indispensable. For many people in Gaza, UNRWA food, UNRWA vaccinations, UNRWA medicine is pretty much the only way that they're managing to survive. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Microsoft reported record quarterly revenues yesterday. That's thanks to strong demand for its cloud computing services and excitement about the company's investment in artificial intelligence. But investors couldn't get excited about the report itself. Shares fell more than 1% in after-hours trading yesterday. Meanwhile, Google's parent company Alphabet had more of a meh day when it reported earnings. Its ad revenue came in just shy of Wall Street's expectations. And just shy is a big deal when the division makes up roughly 80% of Alphabet's top line. The miss sent the company's shares down by as much as 5% in after-hours trading. But it wasn't all bad for Alphabet. The company closed out 2023 with stronger-than-expected growth, thanks in large part to its Google Cloud Services business. The International Monetary Fund came out with its global economic outlook yesterday, and there were a few surprises. For one, Russia's economy is now expected to grow much faster than the IMF previously thought it would, and the global economy is also expected to do much better. Here to explain is the FT's acting U.S. economics editor, Claire Jones. Hi, Claire. Hi there, Mark. So let's start with Russia. What is the IMF predicting for its economy this year? So, its forecast for Russian growth in 2024 has been upgraded in a massive way. It's now expecting the Russian economy to grow by 2.6% in 2024. That's more than double the level it was expecting back in October. However, there's another facet of this. Ukraine's allies have imposed a lot of sanctions on Russia. Now, there will be question marks with these forecasts about the degree to which those sanctions, which were supposed to damage the Russian economy, are actually having the desired impact. Well, that's an enormous jump considering all those sanctions that were supposed to damage Russia's economy. Why is the country doing so well? One reason why you're seeing quite quick growth in Russia is because it's a war economy. That means, you know, manufacturing is having to, you know, have a lot of investment made into it by government spending to meet what the defense requirements are. So that boosts the economy. I would note that we do need to be a little bit cautious with the Russian growth estimates because they're based on Russian statistical data, the accuracy of which is not the best. So it may be the case that things don't turn out quite as well as these forecasts tend to suggest. Okay, so a little bit of an asterisk there when talking about the Russian economy and its potential growth. The global economy, though is also expected to grow at a faster rate. 
What do you make of that? Well, I think let's take a step back. This time last year, there was a lot of doom and gloom about. Inflation was still very high. And the expectation was to get inflation down, we were going to have to see recessions in the US, a big recession in the euro area, and quite a steep rise in unemployment rates. You know, the global economy has just done a lot better than expected in 2023. And it's really been led by the US. We found out last week that the US economy grew by 3.1% over the course of 2023. That's massively better than people expected. Yeah. And I think the reason people were expecting a recession is because central banks around the world were raising interest rates to try and combat inflation. Why aren't interest rates slowing down the global economy as much as the IMF and others thought they would? I think it's the sort of question that people are still be trying to ask 10 years from now. Clearly, we've had a very unique shock in the shape of the global pandemic. Inflation's come down. That could be due in part to higher interest rates, but we've also had a lot of supply side effects. So we've seen cheaper energy and commodity prices. And we've also seen a lot more immigration, which has helped kind of soothe tensions in the labor market. All right. Given all the potential strength that we're talking about in this IMF outlook, does that mean we might have to wait even longer for central banks to cut interest rates? The fact that economies look reasonably strong means that they can afford to take their time. I think interest rate cuts will almost certainly happen over the course of this year in both the U.S. and Europe. Claire Jones is the FT's acting U.S. economics editor. Thanks, Claire. Pleasure. Violence in the Red Sea has pushed diesel prices up to a nearly three-month high. Houthi rebels have been attacking ships over the past several months, and the latest caused fuel tanker rates and diesel prices to jump. For context, freight rates are already at levels not seen since the pandemic. But one source said that they've doubled over the past week for the largest tankers. The ongoing attacks mean that even more ships might get rerouted around the Cape of Good Hope, which would in turn continue pushing up prices. The UN's long-standing agency for Palestinian refugees called UNRWA is in crisis. Staff members in Gaza are accused of being involved in the October 7th attacks on Israel. The UN has since fired these employees and started an investigation. But the seriousness of the allegations have led major donors to pull funding from the organization. And the UN is warning that operations at the aid agency could end in a matter of weeks. I'm joined now by Mahul Shravashtava. He's covering the Israel-Hamas war for the FT. Hi, Mahul. Hi, how are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, Mahul, walk us through some of the allegations. So the allegations have not been made publicly. There's a dossier that Israeli intelligence created from signal intercepts and other such things within which they claim that they've identified 12 people within Gaza who were employees at UNRWA who were involved in the October 7th cross-border raid where about 1,200 people inside Israel were killed and 240 people were dragged back as hostages. These are Israeli allegations for which we have not seen any evidence. But on the other hand, the international community has taken these incredibly serious allegations incredibly seriously. The United States, which is the primary funder for UNRWA, 
said it would pause disbursement uh, of any more aid in your future while this investigation continues. 14 other countries have followed. So you now have about a $444 million hole in UNRWA's $1.2 billion budget. Now, before we get into what this means on the ground, Mihul, can you tell me a little bit more about UNRWA and its roots? I mean, it's a long history. It's been around for about 75 years now. It was set up in 1949 by the United Nations because it had become clear that the outcome of the 1948 war had resulted in the displacement of about 750,000 Palestinians. These people needed aid as refugees, but also had a special status as Palestinian refugees. So this agency cares only for Palestinian refugees. And over time, as the refugee problem has grown because people have children, the number of people that it cares for has gone up to about 5 million or so. It runs schools, it runs hospitals, it runs vaccination, you know, training programs, etc. But essentially the idea is this agency exists to take care of the refugees until the refugee problem has a political solution. What has Israel's relationship or view of UNRWA been? Israel's had a very combative relationship with UNRWA, especially in the last 20 years as its governments have grown more right-wing. At the core of its objections to UNRWA is the fact that it entrenches the Palestinian refugees and increases the numbers by allowing the descendants of refugees to be registered. But the other objections they have have been more specific, the idea that some UNRWA schools have used textbooks that valorize armed resistance to Israel and its occupation. They have in the past made uh, quite serious allegations about UNRWA facilities being used during combat by Hamas terrorists. Okay, Mahul, with that in mind, just how vital has UNRWA been during this current war between Israel and Hamas? Within Gaza itself, what UNRWA is doing is described to me by almost everybody as indispensable. A lot of its schools have become shelters with tens of thousands of people sheltering in as many of them they can. And for many people in Gaza, of whom about 1.8 million have been displaced from their homes, UNRWA food, UNRWA vaccinations, UNRWA medicine is pretty much the only way that they're managing to survive. Yeah, so if Israel's accusations prove to be correct and they eventually lead to UNRWA shutting down completely... What would happen to refugees in Gaza? You know, it's a very complicated answer because nobody's expecting that UNRWA will collapse. But were it to stop operations for even one week in Gaza, the UN has already warned that Gaza's on the verge of famine. You know, we spoke to two people in Gaza. One of them said that all they have to live on is uh, food coupons from from UNRWA. Uh, The other person talked about the blankets and the food and the sugar and the milk and flour that they received. It's not clear how they would get any basic needs like food or water for their children or for themselves. So I think there are countries that are waiting for the investigation to be completed, but the damage to UNRWA's finances and in many ways to its image have already been done. Mihul Shravastava covers the Israel-Hamas war for the FT. Thanks, Mihul. Thanks. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com for free when you click the links in our show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.